When I was growing up, I never wanted a job. I wanted a purpose. My purpose ended up becoming my struggle. And so for me, it was about paying it forward and helping young people or people in general who have that desire to contribute to find a place to champion them forward. And so when I think of even just what I do now, it's not about a job, it's about a purpose. And so I would say whoever's listening to make sure you think of what is your purpose and what are your values and drive that forward. Today's guest on the Explore This podcast is Haviva Kaul. Haviva is an equity and opportunity enthusiast, leading the design and build of Google's student talent development programs for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Before taking on this role, she led Google's pre-college programs across North America, identifying, supporting, and championing underrepresented talent and their introduction into the tech industry. Prior to Google, Haviva previously served as the president of Strong Women, Strong Girls. She was also the founding executive director of Teachers Without Borders and the director of the Leadership Pipeline for the New York City Department of Education. On today's episode, we talked to Haviva about her very surreal journey of grit, resilience and a North Star, which guided her as she overcame numerous hurdles, failures and even life-threatening events to pursue her dream. All right, no more spoilers. We'll leave it at that. You'll have to tune in to get the full story. Enjoy this episode. Hi, this is Janice. And I'm Sarah N. And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern-day working professional. Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally. Hey, Haviva. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's such a pleasure to have you on the Explore This podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I first heard about your personal and professional journey during a talk that you gave to the MBA students at ASB, and I remember being really blown away by it. So to me, it was really clear that your personal narrative has played such a huge role in shaping your professional path. So let's talk about the journey of how you got to where you are. How was it like growing up and how did your passion for the pursuit of education came about? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. I come from a family... I would say humble beginnings. My dad was a musician, played in nightclubs. It was not a very glamorous life. My mother was a supermarket clerk for over 40 years, standing on her feet 50 hours a week, commuting two hours one way in a broken down car. We lived in the suburbs, so outside of Los Angeles. And from a very, very young age, I just knew I didn't want to live paycheck to paycheck. And I had always had this real passion for reading and looking at female leaders or just leaders in general and just being in awe of, wow, one day I want to do something that's impactful. I want to get out of the suburbs. And so when I was 12, I was just very determined to get a quality education. And to me, that meant one day I'm going to go to Harvard. But I knew that the community that I grew up in, it didn't have the resources. It didn't have the educational opportunities that would help me get to where I wanted to go. And so I tested in for a private school. I got a full scholarship, but the school I got into, one was two hours one way, and also it wasn't a boarding school. So we found families in and around my school for me to live with. I lived with seven families in a span of six years between the ages of 12 and 18. And I saw a lot. I saw the wealthy, lived in Beverly Hills in the 90210 address, went to school with people you'd probably recognize on television. But I also lived with a family that was on welfare, a deaf mute family whose husband battled a drug addiction. And I kept quiet. I never really said anything to anyone. 
because I was so focused on getting my education, because I was so focused on making and creating a better life for myself, and hopefully one day pulling my family up. And so I would say I come from a very, very much a loving family, but both my parents didn't go to college. No one did. And so I was going to be the first. I'm actually curious about that. Your parents weren't the one who pushed you to pursue education, but even from a very young age, you had that innate desire to pursue the education. How did that inner drive come about? I would say a large part of the drive came from watching my parents struggle. So my dad was chronically unemployed. He took whatever jobs he could playing in nightclubs, which kept him away from the family a large part of that time. And I just didn't want to live like that. I knew that there was another way. I have a very influential uncle who I say influential because he is a huge role model for me, but he built his own business from scratch. And so I knew that there was another way and I was hungry to figure it out. And I was also very driven to learn. I loved meeting people and learning about what they were doing. I'd walk myself to the library at eight by myself. I would just find ways to just dream. Like I was such a dreamer. Oh my gosh. I slept with an atlas under my pillow from the age of seven. When I turned 13, I had this beautiful necklace that was a compass. And I would always say, because I'm never going to lose the direction of home. I always have to know where I come from because where I come from, is going to keep me grounded. No matter what I do in the world, I will always know my humble beginnings. And I really hold this true. Wow, that's so incredibly powerful, Haviva. And given that you had such an incredibly challenging childhood, yet that drive and motivation are something that you had in you since you were a child that has gotten you to where you are today. So can you just dive in a little bit deeper as to what that challenging phase of life has taught you? You know, you shared about parents living paycheck to paycheck, learning how to be very hungry for education and all the things that were not so easily available to you. Uh, I I hate to say the word resilience because it feels so trite and common, but I have to say that period of my life between 12 and 18 and moving away from home was very difficult and I never talked about it. And it's only as an adult that I can look back and go, wow, I was this lonely soul, this lonely child who lived in her books and did whatever it took to get by. And I say that as a woman who's now midlife, because, you know, some of the situations that I lived in were really unstable. And one would say, well, how did your parents allow you to live in that environment? Well, they didn't know because I wasn't talking very openly about it. And so one thing that I have always taken from that period of my life is that you never know what is going on with an individual behind closed doors. I've lived with lots of families. I've lived with very prominent families, families that have lots of kids. And you know what? The grass is not greener on the other side. And I have to say, it's only now as an adult where I look at my life and I go, I wouldn't change anything about it. Because that struggle, that loneliness, that focusing on a better life so I can help my family financially and give them a better future was a driver for me. And it also was this chip on my shoulder, which I call my motivator, my power, my superpower. And I see it in young people all the time. When I see a chip that somebody's got, I go honor it, respect it, empower yourself to leverage it, to do more. So I'll say that that period of my life was really, really challenging. It was a very isolating period of time because no one else was living through what I was going through. I was going to a very prominent school in Los Angeles, a private school. Lots of the families had a lot of wealth and and means. And I was 
just this dormer, this border living in lots of different families' homes, didn't essentially belong to anybody. And so I just showed up every day focused on my education. Haviva, as you mentioned, between the ages of 12 to 18, you had an extraordinary living arrangement, an experience that you described as a Cinderella phase of living from one roof to the other, with one family to the other. Could you touch a little bit more on it so our listeners get to understand what that living arrangement was? Great, great, great question. So my mother was a supermarket clerk and she worked in Los Angeles and these families from Beverly Hills, from Pico Robertson, from all around West LA would come through her check stand. And my mom would always talk to to some of these folks, especially, you know, women with children say, oh, my daughter, if she got into this private school, we're looking for a family for her to live with, for her a place to dorm. And so the first family that I lived with had four kids. Uh, When I moved in, I was 12. And I think the oldest was just turning seven. The original kind of exchange for room and board was to read them stories bathe them, help them with their homework, put them to sleep. But you can imagine I was only 12. And so it was kind of like a nanny, a sister, house cleaner, even though they had two house cleaners and at times a driver. And I love this family uh, to pieces, but it doesn't negate the fact that I was this young 12-year-old going through this experience. The next family I lived with, so in exchange for room and board, I basically raised, helped to raise their children. The next family I lived with, you know, there were an Orthodox Jewish family with eight kids. And the idea was like, I would just go to school uh, with their kids. But that didn't work out, especially when you have lots of girls living in the house and there's a lot of jealousy. I lived with the deaf mute family who's, you know, the family was on welfare. They had one son. The baby was two at the time. First week living with them, Friday comes, the husband goes out to get food, doesn't come back for about 10 days. And again, I didn't know sign language so well and... The wife, after 10 days, had to come and tell me, you know, I should have told you earlier, my husband has a crack addiction and you can choose to leave. And because I knew, where was I going to find another family? We paid them $32 a month. And also this particular woman was like the kindest to me. I suffered from severe ulcers, stomach ulcers as as a child. And she would always just come and check up on me. And for so long, no one did. I was kind of like this invisible human being who was just the dormer or the border. So I lived with them for two years. In the end, the husband uh, raped his wife, went to jail. It was his third strike. And it was just a very traumatic experience. I lived with another family, a family who I started babysitting for, for extra money, who had two kids, and then lived with an 85-year-old Russian woman who spoke three languages. I would basically cook her breakfast every day in the morning at 5 a.m., take her to her doctor's appointments. And that lasted for a couple of months until it got too much. Because again, If you want to go to a really great university, you've got to get the grades. And if you're working in exchange for room and board and you're going to school with, you know, a dual curriculum, you've got a lot of responsibility. And my family, I only got to see them a couple times a month, maybe. So I was this this young girl just focused on getting a high quality education to build this really solid future. And um, yeah, difficult is not the right word. I think I always land back to this like lonely phase because no one else again was going through it. That is so much to handle and there are traumas that you had to witness and and be a part of. And as a teenager, I can't even imagine the speed at which you had to mature and to just be super resilient and independent. And I'm sure that all of these lessons that you learned during that very lonely and isolating period of your life, that has also further shaped you to be the person that you are today. So we want to also talk a little bit about 
what life was like after that phase of you know 12 to 18 years. So you applied mm-hmm. then to seven different universities and eventually ended up at the University of Southern California, where you did your double major of economics and political science. And after you graduated, you applied to several organizations. I believe uh, it was um, Teach for America, Amex, and also even for a Harvard teaching degree. But that journey wasn't a smooth sailing one, was it? Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so that's absolutely true. When I graduated high school, everyone always said, you have to have a backup plan. And I thought to myself, no, I don't need a backup plan. Like I've worked so hard. I'm going to apply to the seven top universities in this country and someone's going to hear my story and they're going to make space, make room for me because they're going to see how much I've given to my education, that I'm resilient, that I'm hungry, that I really I'm ready for this. And I got rejected from all seven schools, Columbia, Princeton, Yale, Harvard, all the schools. And I had no backup plan. Eventually, I did go to the University of Southern California. And then again, when I graduated, I applied to Harvard again got rejected. Teach for America got rejected and ended up taking a role because I needed a job, right? I didn't come from means and I needed to start paying all my student debt back. And so I took a job as a financial uh, planner at American Express and you had to do a handful of exams in order to be a financial planner. I think I failed my series 66 by one point. Mm. And I thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? For so long, I had just been so focused on getting the best education possible. I just threw myself with everything I had. And I should just mention like that period away from home between 12 and 18, there were some nights that I had to sleep in my car because I was so afraid to go home to the family whose husband had a severe drug addiction. And I didn't say anything to anybody. And so when I got rejected from the first time round to all the universities, that was that was really, really difficult for me. When I graduated USC and got rejected again from Harvard, and I remember my ultimate dream as a young kid was to go to Harvard University, that really stung. But then when I failed my Series 66, because there were a whole host of other things happening at home and life around me, I was really, really devastated. But I anchored back on this idea that life is going to throw a lot at you. And just because you get a no first time around or a rejection, it doesn't mean it's a rejection for life. It doesn't mean it's a no for life. And so I actually ended up applying um, to the New York City Teaching Fellows Program, which is very similar to TFA, but it's strictly for New York City and got it. I think they took 3% of the applicants that applied. So actually it was much more difficult to even get into the teaching fellows than it was to Harvard. And someone heard my story and someone saw me teach this lesson about the Statue of Liberty. And they said, we're going to invest in you. We're going to give you a shot. And it was a huge transformational moment for me. I encountered all these challenges growing up and I got my education and I'm going to pay it forward to every single child that sits in a classroom that I can touch. I'm going to make sure that they know there's this whole world out there waiting for them. And I am going to give them the confidence. I am going to share my own story and I am going to Uh, champion them forward in a way that I wish someone had done for me when I was going through my own struggles. What I'm hearing is, you know, you had that aim and goal in your mind and you did everything in your means in order to make that happen. And so that landed you into the role of the New York City Teaching Fellows, one that was very prestigious, very difficult to enter into. And that was also a very, you know, exciting and some might say a little bit too excitement even 
maybe you could share with our listeners some color about you know what Ooh, that time yes. was like for you. Well, so first of all, you know, growing up in Los Angeles, I had to move new cities. So New York City, very um, different than the West Coast in in the states. Also, I got accepted to teach middle school, which if anyone knows young people, that age between 12 and 14 is a really challenging age. And I got my teaching position was at the fourth most dangerous middle school in all of New York. So I was teaching in the South Bronx. And every day I'd have to go to school and I was in charge of sixth grade. So I had over 30 students in my class. And a lot of these students were either in foster care Some of their parents were incarcerated and in jail. Some were in homeless shelters. Some were living with extended relatives. And I had to teach them. And I'll never forget one of the head teachers at school would say, your job isn't to teach them. It's just to keep them in their chairs, in their seats. And I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, like, that's it? No, there's got to be more to this. My job is to make sure they know how valuable and how much strength they have, how amazing they are, and how amazing the future could be. That was one of the most difficult career positions I've had or jobs I've ever had. And I I don't like to call it a job because it really is a life's purpose that I have such a tremendous amount of respect for teachers. But showing up every day to the South Bronx classroom where you're going to get foul language you're going to have a ton of battles to fight in the class with, you know, these students was really difficult. And I saw a lot. I had students who were being abused by family members, physically, sexually. I had to report things. I had to deal with social workers. I was stalked by a parent on the first day of teaching. A kid tried to stab me with push pins. And I had to show up every day. I had to show up every single day determined to not only teach them something, but to make sure that they knew how amazing that they are and how amazing the future could be. But I couldn't guarantee that, right? I could just show them. I could talk to them. I could champion them forward, but they had to do the work. So it was hard. It was hard is not the right word. It was gruesome, but it taught me a lot. I think everything that you're sharing with us right now, it sounds like it's coming straight out of a film, you know, something that you watch on TV and just say, oh my goodness, you wish or hope to not ever be caught in that situation. But I think, Aviva, it speaks of your commitment and dedications to your students. And I love how you saw it as your purpose not to just keep these students in their seats but to go beyond teaching them and also to show them that they are actually valued coming from very challenging areas like the Bronx, they needed someone like yourself who believed in them. And I hope and am absolutely confident that you have given these children that opportunities. And so coming back, Haviva, to your vision of building schools and through these various stages of your career, you've continuously gone back to this dream of providing access to high quality education. In 2005, you spent some time in Africa. Can you share with us some defining moments that you encountered during your time there? I think the one thing that I'm very conscious of in all of this thread of my narrative is this pay it forward. And also this idea of see me, not my job, not, you know, what university I went to, but see me as the individual and see what I can do. And so when I think about my students that I taught, I think that period of of time taught me about intentionality, 
dependability and consistency because I needed all of that. I needed to show up every single day for those students. And when I think about, you know, the work I, and I talk about educational opportunities a lot because to me, education, and not, it doesn't necessarily have to be formal education. It could be informal education, but to me, that was a way of growing myself. And I see informal or formal education as a way of growing others. And so to me, it's about bringing opportunities to people, young people specifically, so that they feel like there is hope, that there is opportunity. I chose to go to Sub-Saharan Africa. I studied there in my third year of university. I studied at the University of Legon in Ghana on an exchange program. And for some reason had always been connected to the region, even as a child, never having been. I saw this movie when I was 12 called The Power of One, and it was about South South Africa and apartheid. But it really, really shifted my perspective and created a lot of awareness. And so I was determined to get back to the region. I ended up taking a volunteer position in southern Tanzania, and I was in charge of creating the school feeding program for a preschool. So meaning like food on the land, growing the food, and then actually getting the young kids to come to school. And that was like their nutrients for the day. And also teaching English. And again, I was in a village in in Southern Tanzania, 18 hours from Dar es Salaam by bus. And the thing I think that I reflect a lot on in my time is I was living on a hilltop. I was what we call a Mzungu, means a foreigner. And I was a female. So you would think, what are you doing on a hilltop in the middle of nowhere, pitch black, you know, like, you know, rape was a thing I had to worry about. I had to be conscious all the time around my environment, but I was so hungry to pay it forward. And particularly in the villages, I'll never forget a moment where I was teaching these young people. And I say young, but this individual was 23. And I said, what do you dream about? Like, if if you could go and do anything, what is your dream? And I remember this individual and, and, you know, his dream was to one day travel to Dar es Salaam. And then the other dream he had, I'll never forget this, was to build a tin hut, like a house, you know, and I say a hut because that's what it was. It was made out of tin. And that was the biggest thing that he could think about because that was what was around his environment. He had never been to a city. He had only lived in his small village. And to me, it was a moment of, wow can I become something I've never seen? Is that possible? I I do think it is possible because no one in my environment had gone further than I had, but I knew something was possible. But to this individual, could it have been possible? It was an aha moment for me. And I think being there, you know, seeing the hunger in the eyes of the kids, not, not just for like the food, but like for the ideas, like they really, they were hungry to learn. I remember my own hunger, obviously in a different context, in a different time, in a different place. But I love to look at people who are hungry and say, I want to help you because I wish someone had done that when I was younger in the same way that I can do it now for others. Through each and every chapter of the experiences that you've been through and shared with our listeners today, it's evident that there's always this red thread of wanting to pay it forward. And before we dive a little bit further, and deeper into the time when you applied to the Harvard Kennedy School. Would you like to share with our listeners about that experience you had with the grenade? Oh, yes. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So I I did a lot of work in Sub-Saharan Africa. 
but one of the projects that actually I'm quite proud of is working with Teachers Without Borders. And we had run the first teachers conference in the Great Lakes region since the 1994 Rwanda genocide. And that conference took place in Burundi. Right before I was on my way to Burundi, I had read Paul Gorovich's book, I Wish to Inform You That Tomorrow You Will Be Killed With Your Families. And it was a very powerful moment for me because here I am, this Westerner, this young person who had fought for her education, who had then been a New York City teacher in one of the worst neighborhoods. And now I'm on my way to like the heart of Africa. And Burundi at the time was still very much unstable. It still is. And I was in a compound staying with other educators and I decided Saturday evening after sundown, I had to go into town to get online. And I had gone with a colleague of mine who had been in Burundi for quite a while. And we had began walking down this dark, this dark dirt road toward the main road to get a taxi. And all of a sudden we hear this like chanting sound and then there's quiet. And then all of a sudden I hear run for your life, run for your life. And Saturday is a day where during the day I don't get in cars, I don't travel. And so I had gone with this colleague of mine to a nearby church and had met one of his really close friends, Boaz. Boaz was from Burundi and he had shared his story that during the genocide, um, he had left Burundi and instead of going by boat with his father and siblings, he decided to go by land by foot but that his father and siblings, as they got in the boat, were shot from behind and killed. Okay. And so this chanting had stopped and every, you know, I just heard run, run for your life. All I remember thinking is, oh my gosh, I'm gonna be shot from behind. I'm gonna be shot from behind. And as I was running toward the compound gates, we heard a big explosion and I hit the ground and it was pitch black dark. And I just went into kind of a state of shock but I've always had this kind of survival instinct and just rolled to the side of the road and got behind a tree in the pitch black dark and just froze. Just honestly, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die doing what I really value, what I really believe is the right thing to do. We were in the region bringing teachers together for a peace teaching conference. And the idea is that teachers reach the students. And if you can give the teachers the strength and connect them to ideas and each other, that they could be a support for one another. And so it was a very powerful moment. Matthias came and found me. And then we walked into the compound. And I'll remember calling an, a, an old friend of mine and saying, I'm in Burundi. I don't even know where I am. But like, I just experienced a grenade. I just remember him saying, tell me where you are. And if you want me to get on a plane, I will come and get you. And Having gone through so many periods of my life and struggles, sometimes I struggle with the word struggle because I have seen, you know, drug addicts, I've seen people who are challenged with mental health issues, I've seen, you know, war torn countries, I've met dictators, I've seen a real dire struggle. But I was living in America. So it, it was slightly different, but it took me about a year to sleep through noises. I mean, any big boom was PTSD for me. But I think about that moment often. You literally went through a, a near-death experience. And I feel like this is also something that has happened a few times. You know, you talked about the stabbing that happened on the first, first week of your New York um, teaching fellow days. And then going through a time of turbulence in Africa where you literally were fighting for your life. And, and it was just this one snap moment that could be the difference between life and death. So I actually want to explore a little bit deeper about that in terms of days that 
could be so dangerous, days that could be dark mentally as well. I'm sure, you know, even with the passion that you have and the overarching goal that you have set up for yourself to, to provide access to education, have there been days where you question that, is this all too much? And do I want to continue pushing on to further the cause, even through the dark days, even through the dangers, even through the life-threatening situations? What, what keeps you going on? For me, uh, it was a sense of perspective. And I think having gone through so much challenges as a young person, I learned a lot about what it meant to be resilient and to keep pushing forward. And I think intentionality is a really critical element of this. I chose to do the work in Africa or in the South Bronx. I am choosing to confront this challenge. I have been given Yes, struggle, but also so much opportunity. Like, look what I've been able to, and I I didn't do it independently achieve because I have, again, I had amazing parents, but they couldn't financially pay for the life I wanted or the education I wanted. So I had to really push forward. One of the things that I've learned from all these different chapters of life is definitely everything has a trade-off. Everything has a trade-off. Whether you're the CEO of a big company, I always tell people, don't glamorize or wish you had that because you have to recognize everyone in a very senior role. They've got so much stress. You know, they're sacrificing family time or relationships. You know, if you're out on the field, if you are running an organization, a nonprofit organization, and you're in the front lines, your safety could be compromised. Everyone at every moment in time has a choice. And so for me, throughout all of these periods of time, I just had to own it and say, you know what, this is where I want to be. This is how I feel like I can actually add some value. And then there's going to be a time and a place in my life when maybe I can't do this right now. You know, in my age now, I have kids. I don't know if today I'd raise my hand and say, I want to go to a conflict zone because I, I don't think intentionally I can make that choice or I wouldn't, I could, but I wouldn't at this moment in time. So I think every chapter of one's life has a time and a place. And, you know, when I think about career advice, I always try and infuse this idea that, you know, was I sad that I didn't get into the Ivy League universities that I had worked and prepared for so long? Absolutely. Was it devastating? Absolutely. Did it break me? No. And the reason is it's really good to have the opportunities to fail when you're young. And I always say failure, and you've heard this maybe, is first attempt in learning. It is the biggest gift that one could learn or be given as they are earlier in their career because it sets you up with a foundation of the world's not going to crumble because I didn't get that sale or I didn't raise the money or my startup collapsed. Actually, you know what? It's not a, a definitive end all be all. It's actually just another opportunity for you to grow and learn and strengthen from it. If there's one word I could use to describe the kind of person that you are, Haviva, although we just met, but hearing your story, you know, the word for you is intentional with every decision that you've made throughout all the different chapters in your life. It was to make sure it counted for something larger and more purposeful than yourself. So that's something that's absolutely empowering. And I'm sure not just to Janice and myself, but our listeners as well. Coming back to the time when you spent in Africa, following which you applied to the Harvard Kennedy School and got in, 
So after you graduated, you had a few different prospects in various prestigious organizations. What were some of the key guiding principles that underpinned your decision as you joined Teachers Without Borders, Strong Women, Strong Girls, and then Google? I'm sure it's a compact question, but we know you've got lots and lots of stories to share with us today. Well, I think one thing to note is I applied to the Harvard Kennedy School from a village in Tanzania, right, in Songea. And I will say to you, I'll never forget that moment because I was very much determined to finish this application, but the electricity went out eight times. So I had to restart that application eight times. And I, I very, very deliberately remember that experience. At the same time, getting in was was it felt different this time. Not only did I get into Harvard, but all the universities I applied to, all of them, Columbia, Tufts, I had applied to all these graduate programs and I got into all of them. And so it taught me that just because you get a no the first time, just because you get a no the second time, doesn't mean it's a no forever. And you know what? I have to say, looking back, I was so much more ready for the opportunity of going to Harvard post-Africa, post being a teaching fellow, post going through the MX experience. And so I, I do feel like sometimes a university says not right now, but it's not a no forever. I graduated from the Kennedy School. I had a handful of opportunities. I took on the role as the founding executive director for Teachers Without Borders to continue this idea of like building opportunities for young people through teachers in the emerging markets. Traveled all over the world. We were doing work in Cameroon, in Nigeria. I was in Ethiopia in 2008 when there was a ton of political fighting. I mean, talk about the grenade in Burundi. We could talk about being on a bus, being surrounded by thousands and thousands of protesters and feeling like, oh my goodness, I don't know if I'm going to get out of here alive. We were doing work in Mexico and China. So it was a really exciting time. And people in my inner circle would look at my life and go, oh my goodness, she's traveling here. She's traveling there. What an amazing life. And I would always say, you know what? Don't idolize something. Like it always seems more perfect. But let me tell you, having lived it and having so many friends who live that life, you live out of a suitcase. Yes, you're flying in and out of countries, but you're also living through a ton of airport, you know, just the airport, a lot of loneliness, a lot of hotels by yourself. I mean, So it was very meaningful, the purpose of the work, but it was also still very much a lonely existence. I then moved on to join the New York City Department of Education, did some really exciting work with school leaders in the city. So New York City is the largest school system in the United States. And we did a ton of work around the leadership pipeline. After three years, decided that I was ready to get back and I was ready to lead. I think there's a time and a place in someone's life for different type of roles. I had been a founding executive director. I had founded my own organization, Social Enterprise. I had done a ton of for free volunteer work in the field, as we call it, in lots of different countries around the world. But now I was ready to lead. And what that meant was taking on a national president role for um, a smaller organization in the U.S. focused on women and girls. And it was a really, really exciting time for me because the organization was focused on mentorship. And having been a young person who really could have benefited from a mentor, to me, this was very purposeful and this was very timely. I had just had my first daughter. I have three girls, but I had just had my first daughter. It was a real opportunity for me to take everything I had lived through, everything that was so much a part of me and pay it forward. And then eventually ended up at Google and just getting to Google was a journey unto itself because I really had a lot of really interesting opportunities at the time. And people always say, well, why Google? I mean, there were 
there was a lot of opportunity to do some really cool stuff. But why Google? Because I was really focused on the principles and the values and my values aligned very much with where Google was at the time I started believing in moonshots, believing that anything is possible. You've got this crazy idea come to us. Like we want to help build it. And that's how I think. I always tell younger folks who are more junior in their career, just because there is no place for you, it does not mean there is no space for you. And what that means to me is just because there's no job description, people will always come to me and they'll say, oh, it looks like this company's not hiring or that company's not hiring. And I'm like, if that's where you really want to work, if that's where you feel you can add value and you can contribute, you come up with what you can contribute and you make sure to continue to share that. I mean, when I applied to Google, like, I mean, I, I said I'd clean floors. I think I applied for a coordinator role and yet I had managed millions of dollars and I was a senior leader. And a lot of the roles at Google were I was too junior for the very senior roles and I was too senior for the junior roles. So they didn't know what to do with me. So I think I had nine months of interviewing because wow. I wasn't willing to take no. No is a not right now, but come back to me maybe later. And so eventually I landed a role at Google. I'm really happy. I am a firm believer in the impossibility of ideas and just thinking up moonshots and I'm a big, you know, visionary thinker. And I love when young people or anyone comes to me with a crazy idea because I see that hunger, that desire to contribute. And I say, yes, let's figure out how to champion you forward. Because there's so much need in this world. There's so many problems to solve. When I was growing up, I never wanted a job. I wanted a purpose. My purpose ended up becoming my struggle. And so for me, it was about paying it forward and helping young people or people in general who have that desire to contribute to find a place to champion them forward. And so when I think of even just what I do now, it's not about a job, it's about a purpose. And so I would say whoever's listening to make sure you think of what is your purpose and what are your values and drive that forward. I think that's really, really encouraging, Haviva. And everything that you've said has just given me so much food for thought and it's definitely relevant to all our listeners out there a lot of our friends that we speak to we have discussions on our jobs our careers which company should i go to next what role should i take but essentially it's not just about the company and role but it's about is the next role that i'm going to take fulfilling the purpose that i'm i'm set out to achieve does it align with my goals does it align with the problem that i wish to solve in this world which you know very clearly the threat of all these events, live events that you've had, it really is a testament to that. You are going through all these extent in order to solve a greater problem in the world, which is access to education. And I, I think your journey truly has been such um, you know, an encouragement to people like Sarah, myself, and all our listeners out there. So on that note, we want to ask you as well, what is one actionable tip that you can offer to our audience of you know, mostly young working professionals for them to carve a career that would align with their vision, with their values and their purpose? What can they do today to take that first step? Very, very, very critical. And I, I say this because I wish I had learned it a lot earlier in my career. Make sure you distinguish you from your job. You are not your job. You are you. And the reason I say that is because if you are someone who's always had successes and then you experience a significant failure or you get fired from a job, and I have seen this devastate people. I've seen people have nervous breakdowns. I have seen people lose hope, experience depression. And I always say, oh my gosh, you are not your job. You are you. You've got something unique to contribute. And you know what? 
this should empower you to move forward in different ways. And so I think that that's what I want to say to everyone. I think it's really, really important to make sure you know who you are, make sure you know what your values are, make sure you are extremely intentional about decisions. Some careers are going to be linear. Others are going to be nonlinear. That's okay. Everyone's got their own unique journey. And so I would say, make sure you know who you are. Make sure you're proud of where you come from, whatever that looks like, whether it's wealth, whether it's poverty, whether it's sheer struggle, that should be a motivator. And again, I have very much, and I'm not leaving just with one thing. The other thing I just want to say is it's not what you're responsible for. Oftentimes people will come to me and say, oh, I've done this, or I'm, I, I lead this company, or I'm responsible for this. And I say, okay, that's great. You've just told me what you're responsible for. But tell me, what has your impact been? What have you actually achieved? That's what I want to know. When you know who you are and you know how you operate, the rest will come. And so just make sure you distinguish you from your job. Haviva, you've already sounded like you've accomplished so much. And in this short 45-minute conversation, you've had one story after another from Grenades to Cinderella to Google. We want to know what's next in the horizon. Or better still, what's your next moonshot? Oh, gosh. I think people who know me well will not be surprised by this, but I have always wanted to write a book. This is a real big project awesome. of mine. There are so many stories and so many people who have touched my life and so many people who have inspired me that I really would like to crystallize it and help others. And to me, that's about paying it forward. So it's definitely in something written format. And also I've always wanted to, uh, and I'll put this out in the universe, but I've always wanted to do something in Hollywood with some form of inspirational movie. I'm a big believer in inspiration. That's how I thrive in watching people do things that others think are impossible. I don't like the word impossible. And so wherever I can create content around that, that's to me very, very empowering. That's so, so exciting. TBD. <laughs> <laughs> we, we love that you've already have this book plan and even manifesting a Hollywood movie. And as we're coming towards, you know, the end of our episode now, one question that we do like to ask our guests is, what is one thing that you would like to explore more of? I'm fascinated by people and their choices and what motivates people, because as you've heard from my own story, everything that's motivated me is my struggle and it's where I've come from and it's how I operate moving forward. And when I see people who've got these big, big ideas, I always want to know what in their journey created that, like that desire to do. And to me, I would love to explore looking at leaders and looking at what has built them, what has built their mindset, what has built their way forward, and why have they chosen the problem that they have chosen to solve? Because as you remember growing up, people used to say, what jobs do you want to have when you get older? And I always tell people to reframe that question to what problem do you want to solve in the world? And so that is what I'd like to explore with people is trying to understand why they're doing what they're doing and what has created that. Wonderfully said, Habiba. What a perfect wrap up to our entire episode. We love that paying it forward is such a pertinent part of your whole story. And so in that same vein, we also hope that this podcast is part of that paying it forward. We love that it's our opportunity to help you in amplifying your story. And so we are also really excited that as part of your manifestations to get your book out there and furthermore, get it into Hollywood, we're grateful that we're part of this journey with you. We also believe that our listeners will be extremely encouraged 
by your story and would want to take the actionable steps of defining their values and purpose, as well as identifying who they are beyond their job scopes and role titles and company, as well as just to overall, you know, step up of our comfort zones and not be afraid of those failures. So we just want to wrap up by saying thank you, thank you, and thank you, Haviva, for your time. We've enjoyed our conversation with you so much. Thank you both so, so much. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity and just continue doing what you're doing because I think this really is critical. So thank you. If you've stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends. We'd love to hear from you. So you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle Explore This Podcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E This Podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every Monday at 8pm. See you then! 